You know, when I uh, travel, I like to visit local places and experience local cuisine. In fact, here in the valley, uh, my wife knows that I like to eat in local places. I, I don't like to go to chain restaurants if I can help it. Uh, I'm still upset at, at a friend of mine that about 20 years ago invited me to go to Madrid, Spain. It was my first time going to Spain. Uh, and, uh, and so we landed uh, in Madrid after crossing the ocean. And I was so looking forward to the experience in every sense. And, and he said he was hungry. And I said, well, I'm hungry too, so let's go eat. And, and we went to McDonald's. And I was so upset at him. I said, like, I didn't come across the ocean to eat at McDonald's. I mean, I, I love the Golden Arches and all, but I, that's not why I came. And I still haven't forgiven him for that. So uh, this week, uh, last week, actually, a week ago, my wife and I were in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, we were there for the Baptist World Alliance. And, and uh, a group of friends said, look, a local person told us about a really good local barbecue place. And I uh, wonder if you guys would go. And we said, yeah. And was there a dish that, that they recommended? Yeah, he recommended uh, something. And, and so I said, well, let's go do it. And so we went after the sessions that evening and, <clears throat> and everyone ordered something else than what had been recommended. And I was like going, are you kidding me? So uh, the, the recommendation was pork and greens on cheese grits. And I said, I'm going to order it. People were like, uh, we don't know if we'll like it. We don't know if it'll be too much or if it's healthy or not. I mean, forget healthy. We're, we're in the deep south. Let's eat some southern food, right? And, uh, and so that's what I got. And, and they looked at my plate and they're like, we wish we had ordered that. I said, well, yeah, you, you, you should have. But it, I didn't share. I just ate it all myself. And I got on the treadmill the next day. Stop judging, okay? Um, but, uh, you know, when I think you have access to something good, when you have access to the best, why do you settle for the rest, right? And, and I think that's true when, when you have access to good cuisine, uh, but it's also true when it comes to the spiritual life. You know, when, when, when we sometimes get in a rut in our spiritual life, we kind of, kind of play it safe. We, we, we stay in, in a routine. We stay in a place where, where it's, you know, familiar. And yet, I feel like God spreads out this banquet table of spiritual food for us that is fresh and new every day, and sometimes we're not ready to experience that. And so, today we're talking about a better worship. We've been in this series uh, on the book of Hebrews that, that talks about Jesus being better. And over and over again, the scripture tells us in which ways Jesus is better. But, uh, but, but one of the ways... In, in which Jesus being better affects us is that he establishes a new and better covenant, a new and better way for us to relate to God than the old covenant. And, and, and we've talked about that. And then last Sunday, Pastor Paulo talked about he uh, establishes or opens the way to a new tabernacle. Uh, and, and he talked about that. And, and when we think of tabernacle, we think of worship. Uh, so, so that's why we're talking about worship today, because that idea of the tabernacle opens up the conversation for a better worship, a better way to engage God's presence. And so that's what the sermon is about today. Let me invite you to <clears throat> open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin with verse 1. It's a long chapter. I hope you brought snacks today. <clears throat> It says like this, the word of God says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. 
For this reason, he can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so the Bible reminds us this limitation of the old covenant, this sacrificial system that was required by God but couldn't cleanse the sin of the people. Instead, it was a constant reminder of their sinfulness. Every sacrifice, every day, every feast, every animal that was killed, every time that blood was shed, it was a reminder that they were sinners and that they were separated from God and they needed forgiveness, but it couldn't change them. And so that's why it's so important <clears throat> that we understand what is so different about the new covenant, the, the new era, uh, the, the new thing that Christ has come to bring. And, and so we, we fast forward to verse 14 as the writer has uh, been developing this idea and reinstates it and summarizes it uh, throughout the first chapter, first part of chapter 10. Then verse 14 says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Wow, that's, that's what's different. That's the, that's the good news is that by one sacrifice, that the sacrifice of Christ has made a difference. See, all of the other sacrifices were just pointing. There were a shadow. There were a type that were saying something else is better. Now, the people in the Old Testament didn't understand that. When, when they were obeying the, the sacrificial system laws, they were just doing it by faith. They didn't understand that Christ was going to come, that a perfect uh, God, man, would, would die on a cross, but they did it because of faith. Now, we live on this side of the Christ event. What a privilege that is. We look back and, and we know that the ultimate sacrifice has already taken place and it has made a difference for the worshiper. It has changed something for the worshiper. It says that it's made us perfect. Now, let's talk about that. Uh, three things I, I want to share with you today. One is that worship is better when there is confidence. The scripture tells us that Christ has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, just chew on that for a little bit. Christ's work, his redemptive work is so extraordinary that he's given us perfection status. He's declared us perfect. That's what I call the confidence of completion. God is so confident in his own work that he can declare it perfect. He will make us perfect one day, but he's so sure that he's able to do that that he declares us perfect now. We live between the declaration of our perfection and the reality of our perfection. And God says, I'm so sure that it will happen I can just declare it right now. I'm just going to declare you perfect, justified, righteous. That's you and me in Christ because of Christ. And, and there's a, a tremendous amount of confidence. That's why Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6 and says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion 
until the day of Christ Jesus. Boy, hang on to that verse. That's a good one. It's a guarantee that we will be complete. We will be perfect. We are being made holy because God is at work. This summer in France at an auction house, they put uh, for auction this violin, this old, old violin. And uh, I don't know how much you would be willing to pay for an old violin like this one. Maybe if I told you that it was made in 1736, that would mean something to you or, or that some uh, famous violin maestros have played it. Maybe you would want to give more for the violin. What if I told you that it was a Warneri? Uh, would you just kind of say, oh man, that's, that's a whole different thing. You, you, I don't know if you've heard about Warneri violins. It's a thing. It's a thing. You can, you can Google it up. Not right now. Don't, not right now. But, but uh, uh, Yusef Warneri was born in 1698 to a, a, a family in Italy, in Cremona, Italy, uh, that made violins. And he got so good at it that he is considered to be the best violin maker in history alongside Antonio Stradivari. And uh, he made about 250 or so string instruments, uh, handcrafted them, and today, 300 years later, there are only 150 of his masterpieces left. And so they're worth a lot of money. So the base price for this violin auction was $5 million. But they were expecting to get as much as $10 million. There is one Warneri violin in the world that today is valued at $16 million. That's a lot of money. Now, if you're wondering, is that the same as my last name? It is. If you're wondering if I'm connected in the ancestry to this family, I don't know. I just know I'm not on their will. I haven't seen a penny. But the value of that violin today is not based on the material or the shape in which it was made. You know why it's so valuable? It's because of the hand of the master that designed it, that made it, and that put his name on it. And what the Bible tells us today is that Christ, when he went to the cross, this perfect master in this perfect redemption, when he went to the cross, he went there so he could put his name on you. He designed his redemptive plan so that he could apply his blood to you, so that he could put his power on you, though he could put his hand on you, so that you could be called by his name. And that's what gives you value. That's what gives you confidence, the blood of Jesus. And I figured if God is so confident in his work, who am I to question it? <clears throat> I'm just going to take it by faith. That's the confidence of completion. But we also see here the confidence of connection. The sacrificial system in the tabernacle were constant reminders of the great divide between God and a sinful people. But because of Christ, worship now is not about separation. It's not a reminder of our separation, but it's a reminder of our connection. He came to bridge the gap. Because of Christ, worship is about confidence, not about uncertainty. Any religion, any denomination, any religious system that highlights how distant God is from us is foreign to the idea of what Christ came to do for us. Worship outside of Christ is always about doing the right thing at the right time, in the right amount of times, in the right way. 
People who don't know Christ, people who approach worship without Christ are always wondering, did I do it right? Did I do enough? Did I give enough? Did I pray enough? Did I sacrifice enough? Did I follow enough rules? But the good news for the believer, for the one that stands in Christ, is that we enter God's presence with confidence, knowing that we are loved, that we are accepted, that we are welcome. That's confidence for today. And instead of worrying about whether we have a good standing with God when we enter into worship, our focus, our energy goes to how we can enjoy his fellowship, how we can enjoy his presence, how we can deepen that time alone or that time corporately with him. See, our focus changes from trying to get right with God to just enjoying God and basking in his presence. Anytime, any day, we can enter into the presence of God. We can read the word, we can pray, we can sing, we can listen to worship music, we can write on our journal, we can sit by our window or in our backyard and we can meditate, we can paint, we can write poetry, we can just be silent in the presence of God with confidence, not worrying about whether we're accepted or not, but just enjoying what God has opened up for us. And then this confidence has implications, so go with me to uh, verse 19 of Hebrews 10, where it says, therefore, here are all the implications about uh, this worship that God offers us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Our confidence of connection with God leads us to our confidence of community. That's what we see here. Since we're confident in our standing with God, we don't have to worry about whether we're accepted or not. Instead of becoming self-preoccupied, then we begin to care about others. The, the, the grace of Christ flows through us in concern for others. So for the Christian, Worship is not just about connection with God, although that's hugely important and, and, and hugely a, a privilege, but it's about community with other believers. The Bible tells us it's about spurring one another toward love and good deeds and good works. It's about gathering and encouraging one another. That's why uh, worship cannot just be a podcast that we listen to. That's why worship can't just be about being fed. Worship has to be about community, about encouraging one another. I uh, watched a video this week about a little boy who was in karate class, and he's supposed to break this board with his foot. He's supposed to kick this board, and he can't do it, and he begins to cry and to say that he can't do it. Notice what his classmates do. Watch this video here. Bring fast. Let's go, boy. Well, four, you gotta stay in your feet. Come on. Feet, go straight through. Yeah, 
That's the confidence of community. You know, what, what a difference it makes when we encourage one another. You know, that, that's when, when, you've, when you've gathered with other believers and you've encouraged somebody, somebody who thinks they can't make it anymore, somebody who, who is discouraged, who's about to give up, and you've encouraged somebody, you have worshipped. God has been honored. When, when you've gathered with other believers and you've been encouraged, worship has happened. That's, that's part of what Christ came to do for us. That's how worship is better for the Christian. Secondly, worship is better when there is confession. And here's the sovereign thing. Because the superiority of the worship that Christ offers us highlights the seriousness of rejecting his perfect sacrifice. When you have something bigger and better, that's good. But you know that if you neglect it, the risk and the loss is greater. And so as great as the provision that Christ has made, as extraordinary as the access that we have now to God, it seems like some of the church of the early days were wavering. They were growing cold in their faith. They were becoming lazy in their spiritual life. And so the writer of Hebrews warns them, it's a wake-up call. He says, listen, if you begin to, to neglect, it's a slippery slope. If you begin to neglect the value of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, then, then you're not going to value the privilege of worship. And, and if you don't value worship, then you're not going to value the gathering of believers. And if you don't gather with believers to encourage one another, you're going to grow cold. And if you grow cold, it is possible that eventually you'll grow so distanced from God that, that, that you'll reject him, that you'll give your back to him. It's a warning. Uh, look, look at uh, verses 26 to 31. That's exactly what he's dealing with here. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands 
of the living God. Wow, that's heavy stuff. That's the kind of stuff that us preachers would like to just skip over because it's just hard stuff to hear. But it's a reminder that the gospel is a two-edged sword. The gospel is good news of salvation, but the gospel is also bad news of damnation. Did you know that? It is good news of salvation to all those who believe, to all those who, who by faith receive what Christ offers us. But it is bad news, really bad news, to those that reject the only provision that is sufficient, that is perfect, and that is acceptable to God, which is Christ. Verse 6 says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Now, let me just mention something quickly here. We don't really have time to go deep into this passage, but, but I just want to highlight these couple of things. One, it says, if we deliberately keep on, this is more than just falling into sin or slipping into temptation. This is a deliberate, willful act to continue to give our backs to God, to continue to disobey, to live a life that is in rebellion to God. That's the serious thing. And then notice it says, sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth. What sin is he talking about? Well, I'm sure that it covers more than one kind of sin, but you know that the Hebrews writer, the sin that he's most concerned about is a rejection of the old covenant. That's what he's been dealing with the whole time. The sin that he's most concerned about is that the, the church, the early church, which is made up of primarily Jews, would, would reject the new covenant, would reject what Christ has to offer, would, would want to go back to the old covenant, would want to go back to the law and the sacrifices. And that would be a sin because it would be to reject what God has provided in Christ. And then it says no sacrifice for sin is left. And you say, what does that mean? Well, this is what it means. The, the biblical writer has made clear this, that all of the sacrificial system, all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were only placed there so that they could announce the sacrifice of Christ. But the ones that Christ has offered his ultimate sacrifice at Calvary, those sacrifices become obsolete. They, they are no good anymore. They don't help anybody. And so that means those sacrifices can't be relied on to be made right with God, only Christ. But then if you reject Christ, if you say no to his grace, if you give your back to that provision, then there is no sacrifice left. There is nothing that can forgive us. There is nothing that can redeem us. And that's a serious thing. So what, what, what the writer is saying is if you willfully and deliberately reject Christ, you bring judgment on yourself. To disdain Christ is to treat his blood as an unholy thing, to insult the spirit of grace, and is to cut ourselves from the only hope that we have. It's a serious thing. And so we must be careful, and we must pray for those who haven't yet received this gift. And yet, we see a warning here, not only for those who have so boldly given their backs to Christ, but for those who gradually grow cold. The fact that God has declared us righteous doesn't mean that we're sinless, right? 
God has taken away the guilt of our sin, but he's not removed our sinful nature. We still are tempted to sin every day, and some days we do sin. And when we sin against God, when, when you've trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, and you commit a sin, you do not lose your relationship with the Father. The Father does not disown you. You don't stop being a child of God. But what does happen is the fellowship is broken. Communion is broken. I remember when my children were young, and they were growing up, uh, there were times that they would do bad things. They would disobey. They would break the rules at home or they would do something outside. of. I had plenty of parent-teacher conferences and I discovered that it wasn't always the teacher's fault. But uh, uh, when, when my children disobeyed, it, sometimes I would just take it because it was a, a normal thing. Sometimes it would make me upset because I knew they knew better or because they would justify their position and they would argue with me on, on how right they were and how wrong the whole world was. And uh, it never occurred to me, even in my moments where I was the most upset, it never occurred to me that I would stop being their dad. It never occurred to me that they would stop being my children. My relationship as a father to them never changed. What changed was the fellowship, the communication. There was something wrong. There was something that, that had to be made right. And so, uh, and so we had to have a talk. Oh, my children dreaded the talk. It's that time when we sit down in the, in the living room and, and we talk about what happened and, and what we'd learned. And what we, oh, but they dreaded that. I think sometimes they, they wish I'd just spank them and, and just move on. But we had to have a talk. And the same thing applies to the Heavenly Father. When we've sinned, when we've disobeyed, the fellowship has broken and we need to have a talk with him. And that talk is called confession. Confession means to agree with God about what we've done, about how he sees the situation. And the Bible tells us that walking in the light includes recognizing our tendency to sin and recognizing when we do sin, confessing it. First John 1, 7 and 9. 7 through 9 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What a great thing to know is that the blood of Jesus that he that he shed on Calvary will cover all of our sin, past, present, and future. But we must confess our sin in order for that blood to be applied, for the fellowship to be restored. Confession makes sure that our worship goes unhindered, that, that the channel of communication is open. Confession restores our fellowship so that we can experience all of the blessings of God's presence. Confession allows us to remain sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. You see, I believe that unconfessed sin is like spiritual scar tissue around your heart. When you have a sin that you haven't confessed, it just begins to grow scar tissue. And it makes it just a little harder to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
And it makes it a lot easier for you to sin again. And if you sin again and, and that sin goes unconfessed, the scar tissue begins to grow. And, and soon your heart has become calloused. And you can't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that's a bad place to be. Unconfessed sin is a bad place to be. It will make us grow cold and distant. It will make us want to be away from the fellowship of believers. It will make us stop having our quiet time and, and, and just get so immersed and by the time we know it, we've, we've slipped away. And that's why it's so important to, to confess our sin. Chris Dupree, pastor of BT Church, said last Sunday, God never runs out of mercy, but we run out of time. Let's not run out of time. As soon as, as the Holy Spirit lets us know that we've sinned, let's confess our sin. Let's make it a regular part of our worship because worship is better when we do. And then third and final, worship is better when there is commitment. After this stern warning, the writer appeals to the audience's faithfulness in the past and he calls them to renewed commitment to Christ. A Christ who, who is forever faithful deserves a commitment of our faithfulness to him. Amen? The warning of judgment uh, when we reject Christ is fierce and heavy, yet it is couched between two passages of good news. One that talks about what Christ did for us and one that says, look, you, you, need, to, you need to get serious about this. You need to get back to your commitment of faithfulness that you had at the beginning. Verse 32 of chapter 10. Remember those earlier days after you have received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. When these Hebrew Christians had first come to faith, their faith had been tested, but they were so committed to Christ. They were so devoted to Christ that in spite of the difficulties, they had remained strong. They had suffered personally for it. They had been humiliated. Some of them were put in prison. Those that suffered, suffered it directly, and those that didn't suffer, suffered with them. They stood with them in the suffering. A better worship requires this faithful commitment that they had. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said, faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that he would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. The Holy Spirit makes this happen through faith. Because of it, you freely, willfully, and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, suffer all kinds of things, love and praise the God who has shown you, shown you such grace. The faith of the early believers had been challenged. But at first, they had faced it with victory. They had remained strong. But over time, it wavered. Over time, they grew cold. There's nothing worse than a Christian who grows lukewarm. The Bible says that we need to get hot 
or get cold, get right or get left. And so the writer of Hebrews says, remember, remember your first love. Remember when you first met Christ. Remember when you experienced the grace, when you experienced the power and the love and the joy that he brought to your life. Remember when you stood in spite of the circumstances against all odds. Get back to that. William Barclay, a Bible commentator, says it is true in life that in many ways it is easier to stand adversity than to stand prosperity. And I say, wow, that's true, isn't it? It seems that oftentimes believers who are going through very difficult times remain faithful, and, and those of us that are enjoying prosperity get lax. I, as I told you, we were in the... Uh, annual gathering of the Baptist World Alliance in Birmingham uh, a week or so ago. And, and it, you know, Baptist World Alliance is the gathering of Baptists all over the world. I think it's 148 countries, 51 million Baptists. And we gathered to hear reports, to he hear what God is doing around the world and how we can collaborate, pray for each other, help each other out. We, we heard reports of how uh, people around, Baptists around Ukraine, are helping one million displaced Ukrainians. When Baptists, when people cross the border from Ukraine to another country seeking for help, the authorities say, look, if you can't get any help, look for the Baptists. That, that's the kind of work they're doing. And we heard other reports, but one of the things that really kind of hit home for me is the fact that 13.5 million Baptists in the world live in the most vulnerable context. Another way of putting that is one out of every four Baptists in the world right now faces persecution or war or violence or hunger. And, and we saw that, some of that firsthand. There was, there was a doctor there from Myanmar that spoke to us about her war-torn country. There, there was a leader of Ukrainian Baptists in our midst that we had the opportunity to pray over him for everything that they're facing. There, there was someone in the panel where I spoke that was from Nigeria that was talking about how, how every Sunday their churches are being terrorized but, but by terrorists that go in there and begin shooting and killing people or burning churches. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm here to tell you that their commitment to Christ is strong, that their resolve to the gospel is admirable, that they stand in the face of adversity, committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only are their churches strong in the midst of those contexts, but they are helping others. They are giving of themselves to others. And I think, what a great example. Because those of us that are in places of prosperity need that testimony to compel us, to encourage us. True worship always demands commitment. The better worship that Christ died to give to us requires our better commitment and faithfulness. God has given us his best, and our rightful worship is to give him our best. A commitment to follow Christ. A commitment to remain faithful regardless of the circumstances. A commitment not to grow cold in our faith, but to fan the, the flame in our hearts a commitment to obedience, 
commitment to give, to love, to serve, that's better worship. Today, God invites you and me to enter his presence with confidence. He invites us to practice confession so that we can stay in fellowship with him. And he invites us to commitment, to faithful commitment. And if you want to respond to God in commitment, every time he speaks, if you want to make a commitment even today of living a life that is fully devoted to him, I want to invite you to stand with me. And let's read together Hebrews 10, 39. May that be our prayer of commitment right now as we end our time together. Hebrews 10, 39, it's on the screen. Can we read it together? But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. May that be true of us. May that be our commitment today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the better worship that you have opened for us. Help us to not neglect it, to not take it for granted, but to make the best of it, Father. I pray that today, if someone here has not trusted you as Lord and Savior, that right now would be the moment of salvation. That if someone here is growing cold in their faith, that today they would come and make a commitment of faithfulness. That someone here needs to follow you in believer's baptism or is needing to obey you in some other way, that right now would be a a time of commitment and response to worship. I pray that even as we give, we would honor you with our best. In Jesus' name, amen.